Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. We did it a little bit differently today because it's a topic that impacts all of us, which is physical pain or discomfort. And so what I decided to do is recruit a bunch of people who work in similar and different aspects of either training or physical therapy, therapy, um, alternative kind of modalities, and not only get their opinion about, you know, the role of pain, how, you know, what pain means to them and how it shows up for them, but also dealing with patients and, and where they see maybe some productive approaches and then really things that help them get relief. And, you know, cause I'm always encouraging people. It's like, Hey, let's not quiet the pain down so much because we've got to honor it. It's there to tell us something, but it is hard to live with. And so what are the things we can do that don't involve medication and just getting through it? And, and sometimes listen, just using your body a lot, we have aches and pains. So it's great to know if it's, you know, you have these modalities and dry needling or, you know, other forms of physical therapy that help you get you that relief. And so I will share with you all the guests that we have. I feel so fortunate that these people took time out of their crazy lives to spend time on this topic. So first of all, we have Dr. Kelly Starrett. You know, Kelly, uh, he and his wife created the Ready State, formerly known as Mobility Wad. He's written such books like The Supple Leopard. I'm very excited. He has a crazy extensive book coming out very soon. I'll be sharing that with you. He is a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly's one of the smartest, most practical, just sort of really his approach to self-care and recovery and helping athletes recover is, is really, he's just one of my favorite people in this space and human beings. I was lucky enough to get Jill Miller. She is the creator of Yoga Tune-Up, which for me, it doesn't really have anything to do with yoga, but she, her understanding of the anatomy um, is so extensive. She's been called the teacher's teacher. She has a brand called Tune-Up Fitness. I highly suggest her books because her whole thing of using movement and treatment, and, and she just has so much information uh, she's got wonderful books like The Role Model. Um, and she, you know, she's another one. These are people who live this themselves. They, it's not, Kelly's got an artificial knee. Jill's had her own injuries and surgeries. So it's it's not somebody who's never experienced pain. Uh, the next guest I have is PJ Nessler. I'm really fortunate I get to work with PJ at XPT. He is the director of performance at Fit Lab and XPT. He's a human performance specialist. He's very passionate about the topic of pain because sometimes our our sort of medical industry wants us to completely try to avoid or eliminate pain and most people in performance typically don't agree with that so PJ chimed in and shared not only his feelings and role that that uh, pain plays in the relationship we should try to have with it but also in ways in which he gets relief and again all of these people have worked with professional athletes. They've dealt in the physical therapy space. So they've helped a lot of injured people and they have so much knowledge. I'm not a big hacker, but when people, you know, know about certain things, even if it's like, oh, the sauna or, or you know, like with Jill, knowing how to really, uh, her and Kelly created a, a, a curriculum years ago, years ago called Treat While You Train. And 
it's like people who really understand, like, I know you're in a lot of discomfort, but if you were pretty diligent about these few things, you might get more relief than you think. And so I just was very excited to talk about this. Both Laird and I are uncomfortable quite a bit. We've dealt with injury. Um, and I just think that I know that a lot of you out there, you're sitting in chairs all day, you're driving in your cars, you are training hard, you are aging. It's like, okay, how do we get everybody together? Talk about pain. Let's not be afraid of pain. But yeah, there's stuff you can do out there to um, to just get relief in the sh- in the short term and the long term. So I hope, I think the consideration, this might be a two-part series, so I really hope you enjoy these points of view. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett, co-founder of The Ready State. Appreciate the opportunity to spend a second talking about we think about pain when we're working in athletic populations. There's a couple things that we want to just always reiterate, whether you've heard it once or, or 10 times, that pain does not mean necessarily tissue damage, and it doesn't mean something is broken, or it doesn't necessarily even mean you're injured. So we like to say, and just hammer on this bell, that pain is a request for change. In our athletic populations, we want people to actually begin to think about pain as another level of information, just like poor wattage, poor output, my, I was slow on my run today, I couldn't lift the weight I wanted to run. All of those things are sort of bio uh, outputs. They're, they're, they let me know bioexpressions. And pain is just one more piece of that information. And it actually can be very useful to let me know if something is sort of worthy of paying attention to. And really that's what the brain is trying to do. It's trying to get us to pay attention to something. So one of the things we can do with that information though is have some clear lines in the sand. And one of the things that we want people to understand is that the resting state for the human being is actually pain-free. So when that important signal pops up, and it can pop up for a lot of reasons, that we shouldn't panic, we should be curious about that. What's going on with that? Now, there's sort of this top-down approach that we always know that is going on, and that if I am uh, very stressed, if I feel unsafe, if I'm tired, if I'm inflamed, my brain can become more easily sensitized and sort of tends to care about what's going on with my body a little bit more than if I'm well-rested and feel loved and stoked and I'm in a happy environment, right? So it's important to understand that there's some very, there are very much a set of behaviors that we can engage in that help us become a little bit more tolerant and modulate how our brain ends up perceiving what's going on in the body. And sleep, for example, turns out to be one of those. But there's definitely a sort of a bottom-up approach, too, where we realize, hey, oftentimes, you know, we can get a little bit twitchy based on our, uh, or a little bit more easily pain-sensitized or sensitive to pain based on things like our genetics, based on things like our previous experience, how your parents talked about pain, uh, how exposed you have been. If I dropped into the brains of some of my World Cup athletes, I would perish because they're undergoing so much physical discomfort. And so what we realize is, of course, pain is very, very personal, but ultimately that there are a lot of things we can do to try to modulate that. Now, again, some of those guidelines are, hey, if my pain is so bad that I can't go to work, I can't do my job, that's a medical emergency, and I should go get help with that and escalate that up the chain. If I can't occupy my role on the team or occupy my role in the family, also we consider that to be a medical emergency. And everything else we think, hey, this should, we should be able to take a crack at this and sort of is an incident-level problem. It's not an emergency problem. Clearly, if I have a mechanism of injury that something's gone on, or I've got something that smells and feels like I have a fever or sickness, something like that, a red flag, then once again, we go get medical help. But otherwise, 
We really want people to begin to take a crack at fixing themselves and feeling better. And, and that actually falls into a category of kind of behaviors that we've been honestly dis, we haven't been honest about, and frankly, and that is people have been self-soothing with you know, opiates and THC and bourbon and food for a long time. And until we actually hand people a different set of narratives and a different set of tools, they're going to keep reaching for the tools, ibuprofen, uh, you know, food, again, red wine, to, to make ourselves feel better. And that's a very reasonable proposition. So typically when someone has pain, from the bottom up, we say, hey, there's a lot we can do here. Sometimes that's just common, simple myofascial pain and a little bit of rolling or hitting it with something like a percussion gun can make it really feel better. But suddenly we realize we end up with a whole bunch of seemingly disparate tools. And I'm on the internet and I see cupping and KT tape and all of the scraping. How do I wrap my head around that? So a simple model that we came up with, a rubric to help us understand and sort of begin to categorize those things, especially since there are some things I can definitely do from the bottom up, from the tissue levels up, to help my knees not hurt as much after that big run or my back after that big uh, pickleball event. Um, so the first one is we want to see if we can desensitize it. And again, you, you, we're really good in this culture and society. Probably humans have been desensitizing pain for a long time, reasoning with any substance on the other side. But really, that mean could be a rub, that could be soft tissue mobilization, I could be addressing trigger points in there. And that desensitization really just means that, hey, I have some input, and suddenly my brain says, oh, it's not such a big deal. And that created a window of opportunity for me to go move and change the system somehow, right? Because I was getting that, that signal for a reason. It might have been an old injury. It might have been a tweak. It may have just been stiff. My brain's interpreting that way. But desensitization, oftentimes, we can just hit something really quickly and we feel really good. The second thing we like to help people understand is we can decongest those tissues. And that oftentimes, if I have a little bit of swelling or stagnation, um, that language, congestion, can also be, uh, though that phenomenon can also be sensitizing to the body. So if I have a swollen knee, it's more likely that my knee may, my brain may interpret that knee as painful. So when we can manage congestion through movement, walking, non-exercise activity, and then we can add sort of other techniques in there like compression, jumping in Normatec boots, or jumping on something like an H-wave or an, a non-neuromuscular uh, electric stem device, which allows us to get, create muscle contraction to pump out that congestion, lo and behold, oftentimes that's enough to make myself feel better, that I became sensitized because I had tissues that had been congested. And that, again, is a sensitizing mechanism. The next one is we say, can we reperfuse? Oftentimes, we have tissues that are a little ischemic, muscles that are just kind of holding on and hypertonic. We can have tissues and blood, uh, like tendons and ligaments that sometimes don't get great blood flows for whatever reason. And oftentimes, if we can increase blood flow to an area, that may be enough to, once again, change the local environment so things feel better. And that could be sauna, that could be uh, scraping, that could be cupping, and realizing, oh, there's a whole language around seeing if we can increase blood flow to the system. And the last one thing that we often sort of forget or fail to appreciate is that it's easy to put some restoration of movement back in. And I don't mean mean any movement, like if my knee hurts, I should squat more. What I'm saying is if you are finding out that you've got pain with a movement, and there's usually always associated with a movement and the kind of pain we're talking about, is that if I can ask the simple question, do I have access to my full native range? 
And so if I'm missing dorsiflexion or my quads are stiff and my knee, my leg doesn't flex as much or my hamstrings are stiff and they're limiting my hamstring range of the limb, it's not always the tissues, but by restoring our range of motion. For example, if I have shoulder pain, but I can't put my arm all the way over my head, one of the things I can do is restore how effectively my arm goes over my head. And lo and behold, often we've changed some aspect of the system where the brain stops caring about it or th stops thinking it's a threat. So the idea here is, man, there, we can work from both sides simultaneously. We have a lot of tools and tactics to make people sort of in an environmental situation or my environmental construct feel a lot better about, their, about being more tolerant, that you can handle a lot more of, of silliness in the system if you're slept, if you're eating micronutrients, if you're hydrated, if you're, not, uh, if you're feeling loved and supported and you like your job. All of those things definitely matter. There's a human being in there. And on the other side, we can't forget that there's a lot of the biology that can't be explained away through just a pain talk, that it's not just placebo, that we know if that we can impact what's going on and how the tissue system functions, we can meet in the middle. And oftentimes when we begin to tell people how much agency they actually have around feeling better and managing or taking a crack at things that even seemingly were chronic in, in nature, it's shocking to realize how much control we have over feeling better. So again, remember, pain is a request for change. And your pain doesn't necessarily mean you're injured or you've got a tissue damage. It just means, hey, let's become curious about what's going on. And remember, the resting state of the human being is pain-free, and everyone has the right and the control uh, to the best of their ability to self-soothe. So we hopefully uh, that helps you understand how we talk about this in an athletic performance environment and with people who are trying to manage the pain themselves. Hi, this is Jill Miller co-founder of TuneUp Fitness, author of The Role Model and Body by Breath. When it comes to pain, one of the first things that I think of is I look at my children and my young children and I think how free they are in their body, how happy they are to move in all the ways that they do. And sometimes I think to myself, wow, they are never going to have this much freedom and pain-freeness in their bodies ever again. Because research shows that as we age, um, pain becomes a more frequent bedfellow in our lives. Not that there aren't children who don't live with chronic pain. There certainly are. For the general population, most kids are pretty free in their bodies. And you see these restrictions that pain creates around movement and lifestyle really impact and shackle people as they age. And a lot of this is due to the ever-changing nature of their fascial tissues, uh, the F word that I like to lecture on and help people to embody knowledge, um, embodiment of their fascial system. So your, your fascial tissues when you're young, they're extremely fluid, loving environment. And as we age, we become more fibrotic and less fluid by volume. That lack of fluidity as we age really plays a part in the motion lacking appropriate glide. Your fascial tissues surround every, every cell, every muscle cell that you have. And from muscle cell, it spans to the fascicles and then to fascicles binding together within myofascial units. Your fascial tissues are running from cell to skin, from top to bottom, and everywhere in between, giving your body its form, its shape, its volume, 
recent research has shown that your fascial tissues are also one of our the greatest sensory reservoir we have in our body. And what I mean by that is new research, I think it was in 2021 by Martin Grunewald, amassed the number of sensory neurons that are located in fascial tissues. And the number is 250 million. Now, just to give some perspective, your skin has 200 million and your eyes somewhere about 150 million sensory neurons. So our fascial tissues are our greatest sensory organ. And a lot of that pain that we experience is being generated in the connective tissues. 40% of these neurons are sympathetic. They're governed by the autonomic nervous system, and they're constantly feeding your body information about location, about uh, movement of blood and fluids through these tissues. These tissues are also um, sensing temperature. They're also sensing stretch. There's a lot of information coming from your fascial tissues. Um, but many of the sensory nerve endings within the fascial tissues are still hard to define. There are these free nerve endings and also nociceptive nerve endings, pain-sensing nerve endings, um, that are relatively hard to trace, but most likely are um, directing their inputs into our interoceptive sensibilities, our body's sense of its own physiology. That being said, the current definition of pain tends to veer towards the biopsychosocial model of pain. You know, every generation really grapples with theories of pain. And the current one is this biopsychosocial theory, which attempts to explain that pain is an output from many different parts of the brain that relies on many subjective experiences from your body, but also from your emotions, your interplay with your environment, your interplay with other people, and even your spiritual sense. Pain perception doesn't necessarily always correlate with actual tissue damage. So your brain is anticipating painful events if you've had a run-in with your body or you've had an accident or injury. Um, your, brain, your brain may um, put you in a state of experiencing pain even though there's not something that's uh, literally triggering you. But there are also our own um, decades-long long buildup of pressures into our fascial system that can suddenly flip and we can come up with, our bodies can end up having syndromes that are very problematic. Uh, for example, fibromyalgia is one of those syndromes where we have this body-wide um, almost rumination of symptoms through different body parts. And there doesn't really seem to be a clear classification of those. But if you look at the different relationships um, within the body, when you're looking at a disease like fibromyalgia, many of these uh, idiosyncratic pains are really due to fascial dysfunction. We have frequent headaches. Well, this could be the temporal fascia. Um, the wrists are problematic. This is defined as carpal tunnel. Um, trunk tightness, or rather chest tightness, the fascia of the rib cage uh, may be impacted. So sometimes some of these body-wide syndromes, well, maybe it's a dysfunction of the cells within the fascia itself. How does your fascia become dysregulated or how do your body parts become dysregulated and result in pain? Well, if there has been an injury, 
in the past that is persistent, inflammation within that area isn't resolving. When there's inflammation in an area and it hurts to move, your body is more likely to be static. You're more likely to avoid moving that area or you'll create movement scenarios where you'll bypass that area in your movement. And so that stagnant area that is accumulating these inflammatory cytokines is not getting motion that's telling the tissues within it to slide, to have pressure, um, to be shifted. And that lack of movement signals the cells within the fascial tissues known as fibroblasts to actually lay down more collagen. Well, if no movement is needed, then we should just stabilize this area. And so the fibroblasts that live within fascia, that remodel fascia, start to lay down more collagen, collagen that stiffens the local tissue and almost creates a skeleton, a new skeleton uh, within a sea of soft tissue. So we have these areas of rigidity, of fibrosis and collection of inflammation. And, and this could happen within muscles, sure. But frequently this is all also happening within organs, organs that end up shutting down due to um, fibrosis and uh, poor exchange of inflammatory uh, regulation. So it's very interesting that the fascia is, can become a part of this chronic, persistent pain. And so what's the cure in that case? How do you reverse that? Well, movement has been shown to be the thing that helps to flip the switch on immune cell, on the negative proliferation of immune cells and those inflammatory cytokines. Movement introduces pro-anti-inflammatory uh, mediators, rather, and helps to then reverse that cycle of inflammation. And once the body starts to move, then the fibroblasts can reduce the fibrosis and can also lay down collagen in the way the body was intended to move. In my line of work with Tuna Fitness, I use role model balls. These are for the most part, squishy, pliable, grippy balls that clients and students use to self-massage into areas that are, well, frankly, in chronic pain or nearby areas so that the body starts to become more comfortable with movement, the body attenuates itself to pressure, and you can actually get movement into areas where uh, non-movement is occurring. You can get movement into areas using pressure, using rolling, directly into areas of inflammation to start to change that inflammation. There was a recent study at Harvard done by a woman, Bo Riccio, and she wounded the, the calves of mice. I believe she severed their anterior tibialis of their lower leg, is what I think she did. And she used this little percussive massage instrument she applied very, very, very soft amount of latex um, onto the ends of these little tongs, basically. And this machine um, pressurized into the anterior tibialis uh, for five minutes. I believe it was about once every three seconds. There was this squeeze applied to the, the little mice anterior tibialis. And they did this twice a day for five minutes. And what they found was that the mice who had the treatment, who had the massage treatment with this very soft rubber uh, latex application, that the muscle cells healed faster and the muscle fiber type was stronger than those who did not have the massage. 
but also that the blood vessels that help lead to healing healed faster. And this application reduced the neutrophils. It reduced the abundant buildup of pro-inflammatory cytokines that were keeping congestion in the area. This is one of the first studies to ever show the link, the linkage between really fascial massage and uh, inflammation, the immune system. So I think we're really on a precipice of understanding that massage can be extremely beneficial to areas that are inflamed, that are suffering due to long-held chronic pain um, and tightness that is creating uh, fibrotic conditions and highly toxic conditions within the internal environment of the body. One of the other things um, that I'd like to share about pain is that it is also very helpful to put oneself into states where healing can occur. And so healing tends to occur best in a parasympathetic um, environment. So if you are um, under deep stress, I mean, most people know this, if you're under chronic stress, um, if you're in unfriendly environments, um, if your interpersonal relationships are very, very stressful and not harmonious, it's going to be harder to heal. I like to describe what I call the five P's of the parasympathetic nervous system as part of managing pain um, and setting up an environment for healing to occur. And that first P means stands for perspective. And perspective is a top-down offering to yourself. By top-down, I mean a cognitive frame. So it's something that you say to yourself, and that really helps you to be a great host to the processes that you are intending for healing and repair and regeneration. So for example, a great P would be a mindset like, um, I am healing, or I allow relaxation. All of me is welcome here. These are all different P's that don't deny your experience, but they welcome the felt experience and might even send you on a trajectory um, in a positive direction. The second P for the parasympathetic nervous system for helping you to manage pain is place. It's very difficult for all of us to find a sanctuary in which to heal and repair. But ideally, if you can help your environment to be as um, untriggering as possible, it's just very, very helpful for your brain to be able to let go of, of worry. The third P for the parasympathetic nervous system dominance is position. Our bodies relax really well when they're on the ground. So get yourself into a position where gravity can support you. And that might be in a bed. And I know that there's probably some competing ideas out there that with pain, we actually should try to you know, force ourselves to move and to push through. And there is a time and a place for that. But I'm also talking about um, how do you set up a parasympathetic environment, which is also necessary for the resilience of, of healing with chronic pain. Getting down to the ground happens to reduce sympathetic stresses on your heart and your lungs, alters what's known as the baroreceptor reflex. And so that's a little more complicated to share here, but basically when we recline or when we even put ourselves into a gentle slope where our pelvis is slightly higher than our heart and our head, it ends up slowing down the breath rate and it ends up slowing down the heart rate. 
in a way that makes our vagus nerve dominate our parasympathetic nervous system's response. So it can be very helpful in order to slow down and to rest and relax. The fourth P for the parasympathetic nervous system is the pace of breath. Pace of breath basically implies that you want to create a breathing pattern where your exhale is longer than your inhale. There are inhalation practices that also induce the relaxation response, in particular, double inhale followed by exhale. But in terms of all-around pace of breathing, if you make your exhale a little bit longer than your inhale, that's going to tend to relax the body. And then finally, the fifth P to induce the parasympathetic nervous system dominance is palpation. And palpation is something I mentioned earlier, and we discussed it a little bit more thoroughly earlier in this pain discussion, that palpation means that you're inducing pressure locally into areas that may be inflamed or adjacent areas, or even other areas of your body that have been carrying the load while you've been bypassing and avoiding the pain. If we can increase the feeling of pleasure throughout the body through palpation, through massage, through also reducing inflammation, eventually we will induce a plasticity where pain is no longer welcome here and we create more robustness in our entire nervous system, fascial system, and musculoskeletal system so that you know, maybe pain has a holiday from our body, or maybe we can vanquish it altogether until the next round of pain decides to set upon us. Ultimately, for the life of our body and for the life and interest of positive plasticity to occur, we want to maintain movement in the global sense for our body and also in the tiny micro local sense in our body. And we get that through healthy movement habits, as well as small focal massage-based treatments that anybody can do to empower themselves to transform their pain into function, robustness, and a really healthful health span. And one final thought that I'd love your listeners to be aware of is that um, in addition to all of these easy-to-do self-treatment strategies that I'm suggesting about rolling uh, the five Ps, there are also tech interventions that are astonishingly helpful for people with chronic pain, especially as it relates to fibrosis. I realize I, I mentioned fibrosis a number of times. Um, fibrosis is very hard to rectify with just massage um, and the agglomeration, the accumulation of, of too much collagen and too much um, sticky hyaluronin. Hyaluronin is one of the uh, fluids that um, allows tissues to glide, but when it accumulates, uh, it can actually become more like a glue that sticks these tissues together, that sticks uh, layers of tissues together and um, creates masses of non-moving tissue within the body. But there is a tech known as extracorporeal shockwave therapy, uh, easier said is shockwave therapy that sends acoustic waves into tissues that, into soft tissues that don't move well, that um, uh, are you know, long standing and at 
very substantial depth within the body, depth that a massage, <laughs> massage therapist finger cannot reach. And the shockwave therapy targets uh, these stiffened tissues. And when the shockwave, uh, rather, they, they haven't fully understood the mechanism behind uh, why the treatment is effective, but um, I'll just tell you a little bit of history. The shockwave therapy, it comes from the tech that was used, that is used to break up kidney stones within the body. And they realized if they adjusted the wave that instead of just breaking up kidney stones in the body, um, it could be accommodated to connective tissues in the body. And a recent study by Carlos Stecco looked at the behavior of fibroblasts after shockwave treatment. And what they saw is that four hours after shockwave treatment, uh, the fibroblasts, the cells within the fascia, started to spurt out hyaluronan. Um, and 24 hours later, we're still uh, making productive hyaluronan, which was going to allow these tissues to glide once again. So restoring glide in tissues that were congested, congealed, and non-moving. So I just want to give a really big shout out to, <clears throat> excuse me, to that tech, because I think it's extremely promising uh, for persistent pain, pain that hasn't been responsive to physical therapy, manual therapy, or movement therapy. First of all, Gabby, thank you so much for inviting me to be here and be a part of this conversation on pain. Uh, this is a topic that's very personal to me, so I'm very excited to be able to share some of the information that has completely changed my life. And hopefully some people listening to this uh, will be able to empower them with the same life-changing information that, that it did for me. So I want to make sure, a couple things clear before I start that Today's discussion is about chronic pain. We're not talking about acute pain. So this isn't the fall down, smack your knee on the ground, the immediate pain that you feel. However, there is some relation to that. We're talking about uh, after smacking that knee and over time, the pain in that knee just continues and you're years later, you're still constantly dealing with this pain uh, that you can't get rid of. So that's the type of chronic pain we're talking about here. Uh, and, and really, my goal is just to empower people to really understand pain, uh, control pain, and, and hopefully eventually overcome their pain without limiting their abilities. And hopefully we're going to reframe the way a lot of people think about pain uh, because I think it's so important. To give a little bit of context, I want to share a little bit of my pain story and why this is so personal to me. And I'll also start by saying I'm not a physical therapist. Uh, you'll hear throughout this story that I've worked with thousands of these people uh, and uh, I am a trainer. I'm, I'm a performance coach. So my background uh, allowed me to be interested in this and understand physiology and psychology at a level that uh, really forced me to dive in when I was experiencing pain and, and really dive into a lot of this information that I'm going to share today. So I've been researching it extensively uh, due to the fact that I was laid up on the couch for weeks at a time in some of the pain that I had suffered. So I suffered with low back pain starting my early 20s. I had an injury where uh, I felt sharp pains in my back doing a, a back squat one day. I went too heavy. Uh, and I started off with just, you know, when I'm 21 years old, I'm pretty resilient. I rested a few days, went back to my normal routine. Um, maybe a year later, I had another flare-up of, of back pain when I was kickboxing. Every one of these flare-ups just continued to get significantly worse. But st I'm still pretty young. I was told to see a chiropractor, go do some yoga. 
Uh, I did both of those things. And the first diagnosis I ever received from the chiropractor was that my hips were offset. Uh, my leg length, with, leg length was uneven and I should come in and do uh, chiropractic treatments three times a week for eight to 10 weeks while getting rid of all the other activities that were exacerbating it. And I'm going to share a lot of the diagnosis I received here because I, I know that this will be very common and there will be a lot of people who can connect to some of these diagnoses that I've heard throughout this process. So I did the yoga. I started doing yoga, stopped doing jujitsu, kickboxing, weightlifting for 10 weeks, uh, went to the chiropractor, things got better. And uh, over the next few years, I, I kept having these minor flare-ups, very similar. Back pain would flare up during kickboxing or some other activity. I'd stop doing the activity for a while, and it would eventually subside. And then six years later, I moved to California. I start training, and I had a really major flare-up, the first real big flare-up that actually knocked me off my feet, uh, took me off my feet for a few days. And I was a performance coach at the time, so this was really impacting my my job, my career. So I went and saw a physical therapist. Uh, that PT told me that my glutes were not activating or we were weak. My core was weak. My hamstrings were too tight. So I had to do this, come see me, do these physical therapy exercises three days a week, which included all your basic PT, band walks, glute bridges, core strengthening stuff, uh, all the basic kind of PT garbage. So I went through that process and uh, didn't get better. It kept having this issue, ended up for the first time seeing a spine specialist. I, I went to a general care practitioner who gave me some painkillers and muscle relaxers. And then I got a referral to a spine specialist, got an MRI and an x-ray. Uh, and then that was the first time, this is six, seven years into my pain uh, issues where I got a um, diagnosis that I had a slight fracture to my L5 vertebrae. So now in my head, I think I have this uh, fractured spine. I was given more painkillers and muscle relaxers and I was told to stop kickboxing or doing any heavy weightlifting or, or exercises that were exacerbating the injury. So I follow those instructions, but I'm, I'm now only, I'm only 25, 26 years old at the time. So I was pretty bummed out that I'm going to be this limited from doing the activities that I like. Um, you know, it was, was very, very frustrated and upset, just beaten down by that. The next year, another major flare up. I went to a new PT, new analysis, new prescription, kind of the same thing. Just went through this cycle of new general care practitioner, more painkillers, more muscle relaxers, uh, more diagnoses, go get another MRI, another x-ray, new spine specialist. The, the fracture was basically the same, but looked a little worse. And, and this spine specialist wanted to do a uh, spinal fusion surgery. So I'm, I'm in my late 20s and they want to fuse my vertebrae together, which if you're not familiar with that surgery, it costs about $65,000. Uh, and it really shows conflicting efficacy in reducing low back pain. It, it's kind of back and forth. Some people get better and some people don't. It's, it's not very effective overall. And it permanently restricts your the movement of your spine, which often leads to a whole bunch of other issues up and down the chain, particularly for young people. So I, I didn't do that surgery. I just went back to PT. I kept doing the treatments and kept doing uh, movement and just trying not to flare it up. And over the next five years, uh, just continue to have more and more flare-ups. Less intense activities would create the flare-ups. So it went from heavy weightlifting to kickboxing to picking something up off the ground to normal training to sprinting. Um, it, it was just all different activities would cause these, cause these flare-ups. And they got so bad that it was taking me off my feet for weeks. Uh, I was unable to sit down for months comfortably. I'd, I'd, I would have to kneel on, on pads at work while I worked at my desk. Uh, driving in the car was was excruciating and I was taking more painkillers and muscle relaxers than I care to ever think about. Um, 
I was, I was taking prescription doses of ibuprofen daily. I was taking Vicodin, hydrocodone, oxycotton, anything I could get my hands on to just take the pain away so that I could go to work and, and do my day-to-day activities. Uh, so this was, this was very demoralizing in, in a, a very, very challenging time for me. Now in 2000, now I had also seen another spine specialist who wanted me to get another uh, different surgery, told me that the spinal fusion would have been a bad idea a few years prior, but this was a different surgery where they wanted, now the the fractures had actually completely separated. So instead of just being a a crack in the, the piece of my vertebrae, now the pieces were actually off and floating and they wanted to screw them back in. Um, so luckily I'm, I had a physical therapist who I met who really understands pain and understands the principles that we're going to talk a little bit about today. And that was probably 2016 where I started becoming re-educated on pain and uh, started following his prescription. Throughout that process, and I'll, I'll talk a lot about what that process was, but just to give a little bit more of the context, I worked with him for about a year and a half, two years. I had a few setbacks while we were working together. I had still had some pain, but we just kept working. We kept uh, changing the dose and we just kept working through this process. And I got up to 2017 was my last major flare up that took me off my feet. Uh, and then I was cleared. I was cleared of back pain. Since then I've had no major flare ups. Uh, well, take that back from 2017 to 2022 to 2021. I had no major flare ups. I was back to all the activities I loved. I was kickboxing. I was lifting heavy weights. I was running, sprinting, doing all the stuff I love to do. Uh, I did have one flare-up in May of 2021, which actually led to me diving deeper into this research and creating some of this to share with other people uh, because I spent, I think, seven or eight days pretty much laid up, unable to move, which was pretty demoralizing and and, uh, brought me to my knees and brought me to tears multiple times because I thought I had kind of gotten past this. But fortunately, I was able to really work on my psychology throughout this process and shift what happened. And and that flare-up, instead of being... Uh, two day, two weeks of being unable to move and then unable to go back to activities for months at a time. It was two weeks of being pretty immobile and then quickly got back to all the things that I love to do and haven't had any issues since. So <clears throat> I want to share some of that process with everybody so that they understand. But the reason I gave that context was just to start to think about the the things that I went through because I'm, I guarantee that any active people have really had some of those diagnoses. You, you've probably had uh, some sort of pain, particularly low back pain, and you've been diagnosed with weak core or tight hamstrings or your limbs are uneven or uh, you've got some sort of fracture or you, you go get a, an x-ray, you get an MRI and they see something. Some Maybe it's a, a disc slippage or, or a slight um, herniation or degeneration, disc degeneration, a lot of that stuff when it comes to backs or labrums in your hip or your shoulder. Those are very, very common diagnoses that we hear about and not always are associated with pain. And then you've probably gone through the process like me. And throughout that process, I probably saw three or four general care practitioners, uh, five or six physical therapists, two chiropractors, a yoga teacher, two different spine specialists, a sports doc, sports medicine doctor. I saw so many doctors, so many specialists, and had so many different diagnoses, so many different prescriptions and things to do. And I tried every passive modality you can imagine, massage, stretching, acupuncture, cupping, electric, e-stim, um, if it's out there, I pretty much tried it. When I finally worked with this PT who changed my mind, and I use that term mind often because it's going to be a, a lot of what we talk about today, but when I worked with that PT, that's really what 
allowed me to shift this. So I want to share some of those things with you as we talk about this, that really we have a, a misunderstanding of pain. Our common understanding of pain is this very mechanical approach. We believe that when we have tissue damage, it creates pain. And we, I say like Americans in general. So most of us think that if my knee hurts, something in my knee must be mechanically off. Maybe there's a, a slight tear to, to one of the uh, ligaments, or maybe there, maybe I, I smacked it on something, or there's a bone issue. But we, we believe that because I have pain, there must be some sort of tissue issue there. And typically we believe it's linear. The more damage we have, the more pain or the more pain we're in, we believe that there's more damage. However, this is widely disproven and really goes against all the current pain science, but it's still a very popular belief among normal people. And also, unfortunately, it's the adopted approach amongst most doctors and clinicians. And that's a big problem because we believe what those people say. And this just creates this vicious cycle of a misunderstanding of pain. Uh, we in Amer Americans in general, we have an increased tendency to medicalize pain. We spend so much money on pain. Just to give an example, the United States spends about 500 to $700 billion per year on pain treatment. And to put that in context, we spend about 250 billion on cancer and about 300 billion on heart disease. So leading cause of death, uh, we spend about half to a third as much as we spend on pain treatment. Uh, another crazy statistic is that the U.S. accounts for about 4% of the world's population and 80% of its opioid use. So we clearly in the United States have a very strong disassociation with pain that's different from the rest of the world and, and a need to medicalize and prescribe things for it. We often have very excessive and unwarranted diagnostic imaging and the insurance model kind of drives this. If you've been through anything, you typically know that you have pain, you go to your doctor, your doctor gives you some kind of medicine, usually a painkiller, muscle relaxer, then maybe it sends you out to a specialist. When you go to the specialist, you, in order to go to the specialist, you're required to get an x-ray and then an MRI and you just go through this mundane process that takes for takes a ton of time. And so we use a lot of this diagnostic imaging. And the problem with that is when we get an image done, there are many uh, abnormalities that we find in imaging that can be misdiagnosed as a pathology, as, a, as something that's creating the pain. And because if I go in and I say my shoulder hurts, typically the people who get imaging done are people who are in pain. You don't go in and just get a yearly uh, MRI done on your shoulders to see if they're healthy. You go in when you have shoulder pain. And when you have shoulder pain, they do an MRI and they show you, oh, wait a minute, there's a torn labrum in there. It must be the torn labrum that's creating your shoulder pain. Let's treat the torn labrum through surgery or some other thing because that's what's causing your pain. However, again, tons of research. There, there's so much research behind this stuff has, has disproven that. There are so many uh, studies that have been done where they take asymptomatic people, people who don't have pain, and they do the same diagnostic treatments on them, excuse me, the same diagnoses on them, like same diagnostic tests, so MRIs, x-rays, and what they find is a lot of these asymptomatic people have the same abnormalities without pain. I'll give a few examples of those abnormalities, disc degeneration. This is a very common thing that happens throughout our lives. If you take people in the age group of 20 to 29 years old, about 20 to 30% of them have disc degeneration. And as you move up every 10 years in that those channels, the disc degeneration percentage gets higher and higher until you get to about people who are over 80 years old and more than 90% of them have de disc degeneration. 
because there's a part of aging. However, many of them do not have pain. Uh, another a big meta-analysis looked at people who have labrum tears. They looked at they, they scoped people in their hip and they found that there were 68% of people had labrum tears in their hip but didn't have pain. So two-thirds of the people with these tears in their hip didn't even have pain from it. Another very similar study, uh, active adults, 45 to 60-year-olds, 55% of them had labrum tears in the shoulder with no pain. So probably uh, 50% of the people listening to this podcast have a, tear, a torn labrum in their shoulder and do not have pain. However, when I go in with the torn labrum, they say that's the cause. When I go in with shoulder pain and they see a torn labrum, they say that's the cause of your pain. So there's so many examples of this, and I don't want to spend too much time, but I want you to remember that you are not your MRI or your x-ray, your diagnostic imaging. That is not, that does not define you. And I got that term from another PT that I highly respect. And I really like it because it, people identify with those results of their x-ray, their MRI, just like I did with my back pain for so long. I was told that I had fractures in my spine. So when people talk to me about my spine, I said, I have a broken back. And that's how I identified. So we talked a little bit about what the misunderstanding of pain, but now let's talk about what it really is. If, if we have it wrong, and it's not just this linear uh, tissue damage equals pain, and that model, which if you take most people on the street, that's what they would tell you uh, pain is from. If that's not it, then what really is pain? And the, a little bit of this knowledge should help you to challenge your own beliefs about pain and then move forward. We'll give you a few tips that you can move forward with in this process. So pain is really just a signal of danger. Your brain and your nervous system recognize a threat to the system and they give you a pain response so you'll move away from that threat. It happens really fast. You have sens sensors that come from your, uh, your external body that go up to the brain stem, that go up to your brain, and then your brain will say, I don't know what this is. I think that this might be dangerous. So it sends pain right back down. When you put your hand on a hot stove, that's exactly the process that happens. The signal goes up to the brain. It comes back down from the brain to your hand and, you're, and you say, ow, this hurts. And you move your hand away so that you don't burn your hand. That's how that signal is created. However, the threat is a learned behavior. There's many studies where people who don't ha get that signal, they, they don't recognize that their hand is burning. They don't learn that behavior. And another good example of this is think about any of you who have kids. Have you ever had your kid who has fallen and hit their head or fallen and gotten a cut or something that happened and you immediately realize that there's two ways you can go with this response. If you overreact to that and you treat it as if the kid just did something that they should be very scared of, immediately the child will start crying and will massively overreact to this pain response. However, if you treat it as if it's nothing, which has happened many times, and you run up to the kid, the kid looks at you, they, they cut their elbow, they look up at you, and you go, you run up and you go, you're okay, you're okay, and you treat it as if it's not a big deal. Many times that's the pain, the response that that child has is very different because it's a learned response that they have to this sensation that they're feeling. So they don't know that it's as much of a threat and therefore their actual pain that they feel is very different. So this is not just an emotional or a psychological thing. The feelings that you have will be different based on the way that you think about it. Um, 100% of pain comes from the brain. So the brain is what sends those signals. That, that, that is where brain, that, excuse me, that is where pain is processed. Chronic pain, we, we're talking about chronic pain, many, many times chronic pain is a massive overprotection of the nervous system. So the nervous system is designed, your biology is designed to keep you alive. So if you've done something in the past that has 
stimulated this response, then your brain becomes more sensitive to that next time to make you try to avoid it. And if we keep if we keep training those neurons that produce pain, they actually get better at producing pain. So this is why chronic pain often returns stronger even when you have a different stimuli or a less intense stimuli. I gave the example of my back pain. My back pain was getting worse and worse in each flare-up, even though the actual event, the signal that was, that was happening, was way less intense. So I was getting more pain with a less intense event each time because I was getting more efficient my body was getting more efficient at producing a pain response. And then the brain will, will learn from these significant threats to respond stronger next time. So the brain learns that, hey, this thing hurt me last time. It was really serious. So the next time I feel that, I need to protect you and I need to protect you even more. So when I protect you even more, you're going to get a stronger pain response. A, a, a good way to think about this, I heard about this uh, analogy once. Imagine that you were walking down the street and a person... Uh, walking down the street wearing a green hat. Just you see this person in a green hat and they walk up to you and they punch you in the face. And then they walked away. And then you went weeks with nothing happening, didn't even know what happened. And then you walk down the street and another person with a green hat comes walking by, a different person wearing a green hat, and they walk up, punch you in the face. And randomly, this just keeps happening. This Every time you see these, you see a person with a green hat, they punch you in the face. At a certain point, you walk around, you turn a corner, you see a person in a green hat, you would flinch. You have a flinch response as if this person's going to punch you in the face because your body is recognizing that threat before it happened because this is what has happened many times before. That is how the brain sees a pain activity or an event. So these things that maybe shouldn't cause you pain are now causing you pain because you've had this previous injury and you've learned the pain response to that event. There's a lot of additional factors here. There's previous traumas that can cause this. Uh, there's the authoritative fallacy, the fallacy that we believe that because doctors or clinicians have told us something that we perceive their authority and therefore we believe that what they say is true and that we should be in this amount of pain. It becomes this learned response from these people. You can actually get a nocebo effect, which means uh, it's like a placebo effect, but when you actually get a negative response to something because you've been told that this thing is going to hurt. Uh, for example, I was told I have a broken back. So the language that was used by my doctor's clinicians is this fear mongering language that actually can create a stronger pain response. The centers of the brain that, that modulate pain are closely linked to the portions of the brain that, that regulate emotion. So negative emotions like anger, fear, anxiety, depression, chronic stress, all of those things can exacerbate the pain response. And I know I don't need to tell anybody here who's been in chronic pain that when you're in chronic stress or you're feeling negative emotions, your pain typically comes back or, and gets worse. Um, another big problem is just that passive solutions like surgery and medication, for most people, it seems like an easier solution. People don't want to do the consistent work. Uh, they don't, they want to just take a pill or get a surgery and, and they want the doctor to fix them versus them taking the ownership to fix themselves. Um, and then the last thing is that as you remove a stressor for a certain, for an amount of time, it's likely to reduce pain. So the example that happened with me or the typical insurance-based physical therapy model is uh, I rolled my ankle, something hurts. I go to PT, hey, stop doing exercises and activities that are going to hurt this. And then we'll spend the next six to 12 weeks doing these low level activities that might strengthen it. And it's not necessarily that the exercises themselves got it better. It could be that. However, a lot of times it's just the fact that you didn't do anything to induce the pain and the pain subsided. But when you go back to playing basketball, you have another ankle injury. You can't seem to figure out why this injury keeps coming back. 
And it's because that that rehabilitation you were doing was not actually helping the problem. We have a lot of coping strategies. We, we tend to avoid activities because if we injured our ankle playing basketball a bunch of times and, and it really was a serious traumatic event, we just avoid playing basketball. And that actually creates fear around that activity and that pain response. And we create this negative feedback loop that actually will create a heightened sensitivity. So if you do return to that activity, you'll be more timid about it and therefore more likely to have a pain and response from something that you do. Uh, our negative beliefs are, are always something that can, um, I mentioned that already, so negative beliefs can really, really dictate uh, our outcomes, whether we have positive or ne negative outcomes, uh, can really be dictated by the beliefs we have on ourselves. Um, a whole bunch of other things, our postures, diet, sleep, stress, we call that our stress cup. These are kind of all the, the accumulated factors that can have an influence on the pain response. Um, and a lot of those can, the problem that happens with pain is typically a lot of those other things can get worse. Our anxiety can pick up. Maybe our relationships start to suffer because we're angry about the pain. We lose activities that we love to do. Maybe we start to eat poorly because we're not exercising as much. We're not sleeping well because of the pain. This just becomes this big, huge negative feedback loop where this stress cup is, is boiling over. So uh, I'll talk about what we can do about those things, but I want to stop for a second. I know I've talked a lot here and hopefully this has been somewhat helpful for people just understanding that. But if you're interested in learning more, there's a lot of really good information out there and I highly recommend you go dig into it and start learning more about pain. So I learned a lot of this stuff from a guy named Lorimer Mosley, who is a researcher and a professor uh, on all things pain. He's a neuroscientist he, and he's also a physical therapist. He has a great TED talk. If anybody's interested in a short explanation of pain and the misunderstanding of pain, I believe it's called Why Things Hurt. It's a great TED talk, Why Things Hurt by Laura Moore Mosley. And then there's another great website called thismighthurtfilm.com. And they've got a bunch of good resources on there about unlearning pain. Uh, and the, the, another great thing they have is a, actually a directory where you can connect to doctors and physical therapists who understand the psychophysiologic and psychosocial uh, aspects of pain. And they don't have this just purely medicalized um, view on pain. So definitely dive into those resources. But I'm going to give you guys just a couple things that you can do about it because that's the big thing. What can we do about it today? And the number one thing you can start doing today is start changing your beliefs start working on changing your beliefs about pain. Start thinking about pain, not as this major problem, but just as this overprotective alarm system that's seeking threats. And as we start thinking about that, every time you have pain, you can have this curiosity of why am I having this heightened response? What threat is my body sensing? And why am I having this heightened response instead of having a fear response to pain? Because pain creates a fear and then that fear creates pain and it becomes this, again, this snowball effect that's a really, really negative uh, cycle to get into. So we've got to start rethinking about how we think about pain. Also, start changing your beliefs about your injury. Whatever injury you have, just know that tissue damage is not directly related to the pain response. You are not your MRI. You are not your diagnoses. That is not your identity. Chronic pain, most of the time, can be changed. So you do not have to live in chronic pain. You can beat your chronic pain as long as you start changing the way you think about pain and the way you think about and identify with whatever injury you've had. I do not have a broken back. I live with fractures in my spine, but I am not broken. And that's language I had to change 
about my injury. And then about yourself in general. You're not in danger. You're not broken. You are safe. And some of these are mantras because you being safe is the opposite of you being in danger. And when you are sensing pain, when your nervous system is creating a pain response, it is telling you, you are in danger. This, whatever activity is very dangerous to the system. And therefore I'm giving you this pain to get you to stop doing the thing. And this is why back pain can also just be so debilitating because your spine is so important to the system because all of your spinal cord that runs through there, your body knows it needs to protect that at all costs. So when you have minor uh, injuries or minor issues to the spine, sometimes you'll get a massively heightened pain response to that because your body is trying to tell you, stop doing anything that you're doing because we need to protect this to preserve life. So those are the first three things you can do. Change your beliefs about pain, about your injury, and about yourself. Change the language that you use to reinforce those beliefs. So that's number two, is we start we have to start changing our language. As we try to change our beliefs, we have to change the language we use about yourself, about your injury. I like to do this with journaling and mantras. So when I hurt my back the most recent time, I spent a lot of time laid down on the couch. When I wasn't researching this information and writing up this these topics to share with other people, I was writing in my journal mantras and words to affirm the way that I believed about myself. I was affirming that I am safe. I'm not broken. I am not in danger. I am safe. And I used a lot of positive mantras to reinforce that belief and make sure I didn't get stuck. Even when somebody asked me what happened to my back, I would tell them I couldn't even move. I couldn't get up off the couch. I couldn't go to the bathroom. And when somebody would ask me, I'd say, no, I'll be back in a couple of days. You know, I'm just having a little flare up here. My nervous system's overreacting, but I'm fine. I'm good. I'll be fine by the weekend. And I used that language to convince myself that I'd be fine and not use the language of, man, I hurt my back, it's broken, I'm laid up, it sucks, it's the worst, I can't do anything. I had to try to really hard to avoid that negative language. So that's one of the things you have to use. Remove the negative language and remove identifying from your injury or your pain and work on affirming yourself with positive language through journaling, through mantras, through whatever you like to do, visualization, there's so many good techniques out there. Another thing you can do to empower yourself is you have to focus on the items from your stress cup that you can control or change. I mentioned a few of those already, stress, sleep, diet, loss of activities, your relationships and your social life, uh, anxiety, worry, fear, those negative emotions, your postures that you're in, uh, sometimes pain will force us into these postures that are not good for us. And then that creates more pain, uh, your general tissue health. And then each of those things, take control of the ones you can. You don't need to have a poor diet because you're in pain or you're injured and you're laying on the couch. So the more of those you can take control of, the more we can reduce that overall stress cup and focus on self-care. So focus on your relationships and your nutrition and any activities you can do and removing other stressors and focus on self-care. Uh, another thing I like to do is journal or reflect what your tendencies are so you can create some awareness and then seek help if you're having trouble. If, you, if you're falling to this cycle of negative thoughts or emotions, uh, take control of those things and, and seek help. Find somebody who can help you to get through those things. And remember that compassion and empathy goes a long way. Have compassion for yourself. Many times we tend to beat ourselves up when we have pain, right? I, my back flares up and now I'm stuck on the couch and I can't do anything. And I start talking negatively to myself. Why did I do that stupid thing? I'm such an idiot, man. I'm so weak. I can't believe I'm, I had this pain again. I'm such a wuss. 
you talk negatively to yourself, think about if, if someone you love was experiencing this pain. How would you treat that person? Would you cater to them? And would you try to help them? And would you try to ease any of their stress? Treat yourself like someone you love and have some compassion and empathy for yourself because all of those negative things are not going to help. They're only going to hinder the process. Another big thing is remember that movement is medicine. Motion is the path to healing. Avoidance is not good. So it does, maybe you can't move. I, I didn't move much for the 12 days I was on the couch, but I moved as much as I possibly could. I did everything I could to continue moving and to add motion without exacerbating the pain. And sometimes that meant fighting through a little bit of pain as long as it wasn't getting extreme, uh, the pain wasn't getting extreme or moving much worse. If I was in a six out of 10 pain and I could do some movement staying in a six or a seven without getting up to a nine, then use that movement because the more you avoid activities, the more your brain is going to start to remember that the time you went to pick up the weight from that last deadlift was how you hurt your back. I lived in that for nine years. I didn't pick up a barbell for a deadlift because I would believed that I could not deadlift because I would hurt my back. And I had to retrain that out of my nervous system. The sooner you can get back to that deadlift, as soon as that pain goes down, go back in the gym and get under that bar and pick that bar up. It doesn't mean you have to go crazy heavy, but you need to train your body that you are safe. Teach your nervous system that you are safe. Another great thing that we can do is find movements that will create some inhibition of this pain. Now, this is something that probably takes a little guidance of a clinician who understands pain and can, can do a little troubleshooting to figure this out. Uh, find a PT or a clinician who can help you, and I'm going to give you a tool for that. Uh, actually, I'll tell you right now. There's a tool that you can find. Uh, it's a website, and it is ppdassociation.org slash directory. And this is the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. It's a directory of doctors and clinicians who have this mind-body, psychophysiologic means the mind-body model of pain. So this is a great resource to go find clinicians who understand the psychosocial and psychophysiological aspects of pain. So we want to try to create, we want to try to decrease some of these pain sensations and create this a trainable window, right? I mentioned my pain was a six out of 10 in my back. Now, when I what I found was certain core activation and breathing drills allowed my pain to subside down to a three or a four. So what I did is I went in the gym, I did my breathing and my core activation drills, my pain in my back subsided down to a three or four, and now I have this trainable window where my pain has subsided enough that I can actually move, and my, my retraining was go back to that bar and start doing deadlifts. Not super heavy, but just enough to send a signal to the brain and the nervous system that in this movement, there is no threat. I'm okay. I'm okay to move here. There's not a threat here. And that's what I'm trying to train. I'm not trying to build strength in my muscles. I am trying to train the brain and the nervous system that I can do this range of motion with this weight and move and I can pick up this load and there is no threat. When I do, when you do that stuff, it's just good progressive loading of the tissues. You want to, you want to use slow controlled tempos and really fine movements that'll help you to build strength back through the right ranges of motion. So you can get back to the activities that you love to do again, without pain. If you're exacerbating pain, then you need to find a different activity or a way to, to inhibit that pain so that you can train around it. That is exactly what I did to rehabilitate my back. That's what I started doing in 2016, really picked up in 2017 and again, since 2017, it's now 2022, I've had one flare-up, and the flare-up was very severe for a short time, 
and I worked on all of the things I could work on while I couldn't really do much movement. And as soon as I could, I got back to the gym and I got back to the exercises that I love to do. And I no longer have that limitation. And when I feel a little tweak in my low back, I tell myself that what I used to say is, oh my gosh, I need to be careful because a little tweak can easily lead to a major flare up and I don't want to be off my feet for three months. So I'm just going to not do anything that could possibly create any issue. And now I retrain that language and I use different language every single time. So there's a, a few key traits that you're going to have to have. You've got to have patience when it comes to defeating pain and overcoming chronic pain. It's a long and grueling process, but you need to trust the process. Be kind to yourself, take it slow and have patience because you will get through it and you may have setbacks. So just keep in mind that you have to have patience. You also have to have persistence. It's not a straight line. You, you will hit setbacks as you go through. You have to just keep moving forward, trust the process and just keep moving forward. Find people who support you, who can help you to keep trusting the process and have that persistence to keep moving forward and not get uh, derailed when you have some setbacks because you will face setbacks. And then have, you have to have courage. If you've been suffering with chronic pain, you have courage and you need to summon some of that courage to dig deep, fight through the pain, find the discipline to stay the course and keep persisting through because you will get to the other side and you will be able to return to activities without that pain because you are not limited by that pain. So just some final takeaways there. That was a lot of information. I really hope that you left with something. Maybe it was just a little bit of a new understanding of what pain is. Uh, maybe it was a little bit of a practical application on what you can actually do. I gave you a few resources there that you should go check out. And I'll repeat those one more time. Lorimer Mosley, uh, go check out his TED talk called Why Things Hurt on YouTube. Um, he's got a website. He's got a lot of stuff that, that's great to find out. He's an Australian, I believe. So you'll see him. He's a tall, skinny guy with a shaved head and an Australian accent. Uh, he's super funny as well. So he's great to listen to. Highly recommend him. Uh, go check out the thismighthurtfilm.com and check out some of their resources. And they actually have a link to that directory directly on that website. So you'll find the directory. But if you want to go uh, straight to that directory, it is ppdassociation.org slash directory. I'm not associated or affiliated with any of those resources I just told you. They're just things that I have found to really help me and some people that I've worked with overcoming pain. So I hope that you guys can, can find those uh, to be helpful as well. Um, I'm really hoping that you leave here today with a sense of empowerment. And just remember, don't give in to believing your own bullshit and your own negativity. Don't give in to believing that you are abnormal or you're in danger or you're broken. Any of this shit that you may have been told by a, a doctor or a physical therapist or somebody in the past, do not give in to believing that stuff because you are not abnormal, you're not in danger, you're not broken, and you can get through this. Don't give up. Focus on the things that you can control and have the patience and the persistence and the courage to just keep moving forward. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button 
leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.